Sawate de Skibbly, and welcome again to another episode of Latin in Layman's. We're going to be kind of bridging off of what we did uh, in our prior episode. And for today, I'm going to be doing some more story time. But in this case, we're going to be uh, diving into the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. Um, and Theseus and the Minotaur kind of overlaps with Icarus and Daedalus in a way. Um, and it kind of, it, 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 uh, it follows the events of Icarus and Daedalus. They kind of over, overlap a little bit, but um, they are uh, kind of separated in the time. But our one and only King Minos, the big bully himself, is going to be making yet again another presence in this story. So we're going to dive into the myth talk about the moral implications both classically in classical antiquity, maybe as to why they had this story, to give kind of a framework for how Greek, Greco, or Roman citizens ought to conduct themselves, or it might just be an ideological myth explaining something that was rather unexplainable at that time, but it helped them delineate and turn that metaphysical, that unknown into something that's known and brought it to the physical world. So if you're curious and you want to learn some more about the world around us and also have a little bit of a story time, then I urge you to keep on uh, listening through all of this ramble bambling so that we can get into uh, the myth. And before I forget, I want to go ahead and uh, plug my podcast. So wherever you guys are listening to my podcast, you can go on over to the app. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts. Maybe it's Spotify. Maybe it's Google Podcasts. Maybe it's just somewhere like Audible or Amazon Music. I'm sure if you just click on that, you know, my my um, my image, my insignia for Latin and layman's, you know, all those books there, Um I'm sure if you clicked on that, it would send you to a link, and then you could find some way to throw down some stars. Um, hopefully not one, but hey, you know what? If you're giving me a one, maybe I've deserved it, and you know what? That's all good in the hood. Um, I appreciate you going and doing it because I keep on saying it over and over and over and over and over again. Um, I used to not ever do this, and now like I think it's all about just reminding my audience that they can have um, – an impact in my 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 reach, my audience, the the power. I think you know the more I gain traction, the more Spotify for podcasters is giving me the opportunity. Um, the reason why I actually have ads now for the first time ever is that I actually have a kind of steady audience. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, like the algorithm is going to re reward those uh, more so in favor. Uh, they're getting a little bit more traction, a little bit more traffic in that direction. So if you guys could help me out, I really do appreciate it as always. So with that being said, and without further ado, let's dive on into it all. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, way off in a faraway land, there was a, a man. His name was Minos. He was the king of Crete. And he had a monstrous son with the body of a man and the head of a bull. He was called the Minotaur. He was kept in a maze of tunnels, a twisting labyrinth underneath the king's palace. 
The creature would only eat human flesh. The king knew that. If he were to feed the monster his own people, they would rise up against him. But the creature was his own son. He was of royal blood. He couldn't let him starve to death. What was he to do? One of his advisors said, Many nations fear you, my majesty. You must demand that each kingdom send seven young men a year. And so it was. Each kingdom of Greece was forced to send seven young men, seven young men who would never be heard of again. Rumors traveled from Crete with trading ships, rumors of flesh-eating beasts beneath Minos' palace. When the turn of Athens came, the city's king couldn't bring himself to send seven young Athenians to a horrible death. He delayed and delayed and delayed. Eventually, King Minos, furious, set sail himself with a fleet of ships. And when the people of Athens saw the ships of King, King Minos slicing through the waves, every man, woman, and child shuddered. They had heard stories about Minos' monstrous son, and the word Minotaur had been whispered from mouth to ear. What was more, the last time Minos had visited the city, he had taken the adventure Daedalus and the boy Icarus. Father and son had never been seen again. As soon as the ship reached the quayside, King Minos and the soldiers leapt ashore. They marched through the streets, skibidabibidabop. And wherever the king saw a young man of noble bearing, he would shout, seize him. Six young men had been taken when they reached the palace of King Aegeus, the king of Athens. Standing behind the king's throne, there was a beautiful young man with a crown of laurel leaves on his head. He looked like a god. He, he could have almost been seen in the same light as Ares, the beautiful god of war. King Minos lifted his arm and pointed, he will be the seventh. King Aegeus fell to the ground at Minos' feet and pleaded, please, he is my only son, my only son, Theseus. I beg you, spare his life. Minos kicked the king aside, seize him. Pay the court a fine or serve your sentence. You have violated the law. Anyways, if anybody knows that reference, uh, I hope you got a chuckle. The, the seventh Athenian youths were bundled aboard a Cretan ship. For three days and nights they sailed. When they reached the island of Crete, they were led to the king's palace by a glittering procession. They were invited to sit down to a feast but as they tasted the savory meats and sipped the sweet wines, they could hear the sound of keys turning in locks, and they knew they were trapped. That night they slept on silken sheets under purple blankets, but the next morning there were only six of them at the breakfast table. As they ate, they heard the distant sounds of screaming from somewhere far below. Five pushed their plates away, but Theseus chewed his food and listened a strange half-smile playing across his face. King Minos entertained his guests. The finest Cretan runners, leapers, wrestlers, and archers were all invited to compete with the Athenians. Theseus, Theseus defeated every one of them. And in the evenings, the king's daughter, 
Princess Ariadne would dance for them. She wore a crown that burst into flickering flames if stone was struck against iron. It made the shadows of the hall dance alongside her. And then one morning, there were five of them at the breakfast table. And then there were four. Ariadne couldn't take her hand, eyes off of Theseus and laid her hands. When, when he was running or wrestling, she would be watching him. When she was dancing, her eyes were fixed on him. Theseus felt the weight of her gaze and smiled to himself. Then there were three of them at the breakfast table, and then two. When no one was watching, Theseus seized Ariadne, Ariadne's hand. Ariadne, from the moment I first saw you, I have loved you ever since. She looked at him and tears stri strickled down her cheeks. She shook her head, pulled her hand away, and ran out of the hall. And then, one morning, Theseus found that he was alone at the breakfast table. He waited for his chance and then approached Ariadne again. He whispered, Ariadne, is there nobody who could help me? If I could escape, I would take you with me. Ariadne couldn't help herself. She melted into his arms. She pressed her lips to his lips. Yes, yes, there is someone. That night she crept out of the palace and placed just inside the maze the things Theseus would need in order to kill her monstrous brother. Then she tiptoed into Theseus's bedchamber. She leaned over the bed. My love, when they take you to the labyrinth, feel amongst the shadows to your left. There you will find my crown to light your way. You will find a ball of golden thread so that you won't get lost. And you will find a bronze sword for my brother. I will be waiting for you outside. She kissed him and slipped into the night. The next morning, King Minos was amazed. Theseus came out of his bedroom out of his own free will. No need to drag him screaming. Surely by, by now he understood his fate. He was cracking jokes with the guards. Down to the maze they went. The darkness swallowed him and there was silence. Theseus felt among the shadows. His fingers crossed around and closed finally down upon Ariadne's crown. He lifted it onto his head. He fell for the iron and stone and struck them together. The crown blazed with light and now he could see. He tied the end of the ball of golden thread to a snag of rock. He picked up the bronze sword. He began to make his way into the labyrinth, unraveling the thread as he went. He wound to the left and to the right. Above his head, the shadows danced. Below his feet, there were shreds of rag and splinters of bone, picked clean. Then suddenly he could hear it, grunting and snorting. And then he could smell it, a sour smell of stale sweat and the sickly sweet stench of rotten flesh. Then he rounded a bend and saw it, the human body, the great bull head, the minotaur. The monster was filled with terror. His night's sight had never endured such brightness before. He lurched and lost his balance, blinded. Theseus laughed. This was easy. He plunged his sword into his belly's beast. The minotaur dropped to his hands and his knees. 
He felt something pierce his skin over and over and over again. He wanted to beg for mercy, but he had never been taught the words in order from which to speak. He screamed with no words again and again. Theseus stabbed the Minotaur. If only he had the words to plead. Theseus stabbed its neck, its arms, its thighs, its chest. He opened up a constellation of wounds. It sank to its knees. He seized one of his horns and hacked, hacked his head right off. Then he wound in the golden thread and followed the tunnels to the right and left, dragging the head behind him. At last he saw the entrance. He crouched and waited until the night came. Ariadne was waiting outside. When the stars were shining, Theseus came out of the labyrinth and lifted the great bull head. He thrust it onto a stake. Then he seized Ariadne's hand and they ran to the harbor. They jumped onto the deck of the ship. They cut the ropes and sailed away. But before they left the harbor, they set fire to the fleet of Cretan ships so that a black pall of smoke rose into the sky, extinguishing the lights of the stars. Ariadne had never been so happy. Every night, Theseus would whisper promises into her ears. Such wealth, such happiness will be ours when you become a queen of Athens. After several days, they came to the island of Naxos. Theseus suggested they go ashore for fresh meat and fresh fruit. And that, that night, they lit a fire on the beach. They ate, they talked, they laughed, they danced in the firelight. Then they slept in the warmth of the embers. In the middle of the night, Ariadne woke. She was alone. She sat up and looked about herself. By the light of the moon, she could see the sheep. She could see the anchor chain was being lifted. She could see the sails were being unfurled. She ran down to the water's edge. Theseus! From the deck of the ship came a sound of laughter. Cold, hard laughter. Sister of a bull. These were all you gave me that were worth anything. Take them back. There was a thud behind her, and then another, and then a third. She turned and saw her crown, the ball of golden thread and bronze sword lying on the sand. Sister of a bull, ponder this as you wander the coast of Naxos, bellowing and blaring. I never loved you. I never, ever loved you. And now I am free to forget you. The wind filled the sails. The prow of the ship sliced through the waves. And Theseus was gone. Ariadne dropped to her knees. She buried her face in her hands and trembled with sobs. But nothing is hidden from the eyes of the mighty gods. Dionysus, the god of drinking and drunkenness, wild music and wild dancing. He saw her, and he felt pity stirring in his heart. He came striding down from the heavens and lifted her to her feet. Ariadne, he said, forget Theseus. Theseus and his empty promises. To make you a queen, to make you all this of Athens, it means nothing. I will make you a queen of the heavens instead. He lifted up her crown and it burst into flames. He reached high above his head and set it in the heavens as a constellation. A circlet, 
of shining stars. Then he led her up to his palace on the high slopes of Mount Olympus, where she became his consort, his queen. And ever since then, we have been able to see her crown in the sky. And sometimes we call it Pleiades. And that's the story. Um, and what I'll do is I'll follow that up because uh, what that myth fails to, to address is Theseus coming back to Athens and what follows suit. And unfortunately, Theseus is kind of a booby butthole in a way. And um, if you guys have ever understood, um, you know, Greek mythology and, and more so Greek heroes, they really aren't heroes. I mean, like they are like because of their, you know, their, their valor and their victories and, and all that stuff uh, in battle. But uh, the, they're, they're kind of some, some slimy guys. Like, I mean, like Agamemnon wasn't great. Um, you know, you get Nestor, you get, I mean, Achilles. I mean, the Iliad starts out with the wrath of Achilles. I mean, Achilles was a ruthless dude. And when, when his homie G, Patroclus, um, when he was killed by Hector and then Achilles, you know, you know, he, uh, he dueled with Hector, ends up killing Hector. And then he's so ticked off for the fact that, or because of the fact that Hector had killed Patroclus, his homie G, and a little bit more, hint, hint, wink, wink. Um, people don't really think about that, and I don't really address that. But like to my more mature audience, uh, a lot of the Greek myths, especially if you're a dude and you're fighting on the shores of Troy for 10 years uh, without any sort of... Um, seeing of the other and or opposite sex, uh, the Greek, uh, Greek soldiers got a little, um, got a little inventive. Anyways, you know, after Achilles ends up killing Hector, I mean, that, that isn't the end of the day. He ends up tying Hector to his horse and dragging his body for days on end in front of the gates of Troy, just to show Priam, the father of Hector and the king of Troy, um, how mad he was and imagine like hey you know what how much was left do you think after having drug hector around uh scraping against the you know gravel and dirt for like two three days i mean that's why priam comes out of um troy and he just begs and pleads of icarus not icarus achilles to uh to just give him his uh, the, the the dead body of his son so that he can just lay him to rest and put him put him to sleep and you know uh and bury him and honor his death but uh achilles is just ticked off so you know that's just a, an, an example of you know quote unquote greek heroes and in this case theseus was also a, a hero um at least i believe so somebody could correct me and say that he wasn't and uh you're probably right but he kind of was a little bit of a slimy dude. I mean, like, in a way, what, what would you say these moral implications are? I mean, if you're thinking about it, I mean, in classical antiquity, I would say the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur probably was used to promote maybe an idea of, I don't know, like civic duty, right? You know, like having to to honor what the the 
you know, King Minos wanted essentially and all that stuff. But more so, you know, Theseus was seen as kind of like this model citizen. He was willing to sacrifice himself um, for the good of his people in a way. But like Theseus was also just like, you know, meh, as you can see. And then he ghosts Ariadne. You know, he could have been way more of a gentleman. All right. This dude is definitely not a gentleman. All right. I think that also it shows that what comes around goes around so that even even though Theseus, oh, I, you know what? I'm getting off track. I didn't even finish my my myth that I was going to talk about is, you know, when I, I when I've talked about in the past, you know, this also serves it's as an ideological myth for explaining as to why we have the Aegean Sea. Because Theseus, before he left, he told his dad that upon arriving back into Athens and docking his ship, if he was flying a black flag, that had meant he had perished on Crete. But if he was flying a white flag, I believe, that means that he had lived. But dummy dummy Theseus didn't think too much about it, and he kept that black flag sailing. And what do you think happened? Well, he's coming into dock. Aegeus, all, you know, really nervous but also excited, comes out. He sees that the ship itself has a black flag sailing. And out of the just the sadness and the woe of losing his only son, um, he casts himself into the ocean and is never seen again. And that's where we get the Aegean Sea. So maybe it also serves as kind of a warning against the dangers of tyranny, like King Minos, seen as this tyrannical ruler who used his will of violence and fear and force to impose his ruling. You know, he's kind of a tyrannical leader, a.k.a. Um, you know, tyrannous in uh, Latin means king. Uh, that's where we get Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, so ty Tyrannus meaning king, Saurus means lizard, and then Rex also means king. So king, lizard, king is what Tyrannosaurus Rex really means etymologically. Rather redundant, but whatever. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's relevant today, but... Uh, as kind of like just showing the um, the the never giving up on hope and uh, facing adversity in insurmountable odds. Um, I don't know. I don't think that there's there's a lot of like nuances to this story. I want to say because Theseus is a brave dude. He ends up doing the deed that he knew knew that he needed to do. He set his mind to it. But at the end of the day, there was collateral damage. Collateral damage from Ariadne, but, you know, she ended up getting, uh, you know, some creme de la creme treatment from Dionysus. Uh, quite a funny dude, in my opinion. If anybody has ever played uh, the Elder Scrolls, um, it makes me think of, uh, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting his name now. Oh my gosh. In the Shivering Isles expansion pack for Oblivion. Who's the ruler of the Shiver Shivering Isles? Um, oh my gosh. He's just like Dionysus. That's how I think about him. Oh my gosh. We're, all right. We're going to do this right now. I'm just going to keep it going because I got to. All right. A shivering Isles. All right. I just looked at Shivering Isles. Let's see if it, it gives me. 
Um, oh, I think I just remembered it. Cheogorath. Yes. Without, yes, the Dajic Prince Cheogorath. Cheogorath is pretty much Dionysus in my opinion, but in a depiction uh, in a fantasy video game, uh, I will always reference Oblivion. Oblivion is one of like, it's like childhood. I love that game so much. Anyways, random tangent. Um, I don't know because what comes around goes around, right? His collateral, his collateral was his dad. I mean, what do you think Theseus did after the fact? Maybe I'll, um, I'll do some reading and I'll draft up a myth, uh, and we can talk about, um, what ends up happening after this whole circumstance, you know, is Theseus sad? Is he upset? that he lost his dad because of his own careless nature. You know, he should have been a little bit more, um, not so much in his head. As you can see from this story, um, Theseus kind of fancies himself a little bit. And I think that, you know, it kind of goes back to the fact that we got we to gotta understand and be humble, show humility, all that good stuff. Because at the end of the day, the world will humble us if we're not humble to it. It's absolutely true. You will be humbled. You will be humiliated. And it's all about understanding that you can humiliate yourself. You can be humble um, and understand that you're this small little being in this world. That's what I love about biking. That's what I love about getting outside and just getting deep into the woods is that the wild world really comforts me. It really does. You know, I look around and I see how small I really am. Nobody's going to remember me when I die. Nobody's going to remember you probably either. Sorry to say it. Maybe there will be a few, but a hundred years from now, you know, it's, it's like we have such egos about us as if like we're the most important people in this world, but we're really not. We're just a speck in the Milky Way. I mean, get outside and look up the stars at night without any light pollution and look at how vast the, the night sky really is and how inconsequential you really are. So I think a lot of it has to do with understanding that, um, there is an aspect of humility. You know, Theseus could have been humble. He could have been like, you know what, Ariadne, thank you. Um, you, you. You've saved me. He could have, you know, he was a liar. He lied to her. And then in order to get away from his lie, what does he do? He ghosts her. He does the typical, you know, Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, whatever, you know, uh, dating pl platform you're on. Um, you know, I, that's why I'm not on those anymore. It's because like every single time it just made me feel insecure. It made me felt like, you know, I would like reach out to these um, people that I'd match with and I'd, you know, try and make something happen. And then, you know, maybe it would be a date and then all of a sudden it would be silence. It would be nothing. It would just be, and you know, I get it. It's fine, whatever. But for me, what I do a lot of the time is, you know what? I'm not trying to waste people's time. I don't want people wasting my time. I'm sure Ariadne didn't want to waste her time with Theseus if she had known that she would have been dumped on Naxos, which is just this island in the middle of nowhere. She wanted to waste her time. We got things to do. 
I got places to be. If if you're not interested in me, I, I'm looking for my partner of crime. I'm looking for my ride, ride or die. All right. Don't waste my time. But you know what? Theseus decided to waste uh, Ariadne's time, just like everybody else's. You know, has the zero decency, and to just be like, you know what? I loved the uh getting to meet you i didn't feel a romantic connection with you but if you would like to continue platonically i would love to further do that and if that's not something that you want to do then it was really nice to meet you it was really nice to get coffee with you or get drinks with you and you know what i hope that you find what you're looking for i don't know why we can't be like that you know i feel like that is you know i i am like that with other people uh i feel like they'd appreciate that um, maybe they don't. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I think that anybody appreciates that more than just being met with silence. Okay? Just like how I deal with my freaking property management company. It's like they treat problems by meeting it with silence. And it gets me to the point where I want to find Catherine, my property manager, and punch her in the face because she continually tries to cancel my maintenance or request, even though they don't end up being fulfilled. Why are you doing that? I'm not going to pay the rent if that's the case, because as a, as, as my right as a renter, I don't have to pay the rent. If you aren't maintaining my property. See, these people don't know things and I know things. Or if I don't know things, I read into it to know more things because at the end of the day, I've been pushed around a lot. And yes, like I've said, my empathy has crippled me and it has allowed me to be taken advantage of. But now I can be empathetic, but I can also lead with a heavy hand and a heavy fist and know that my empathy is not going to cripple me, but it's going to enrich me. Anyways, ramble bamble on that. But, you know, at the end of the day, Theseus could have been so much more of a gentleman. He could have been such more of a, an honest person. And I think that that's really where it comes down to is that although he ended up fi finishing the deed, doing the deed, he wasn't honest about it fully. And because that honesty wasn't, he wasn't, he, he didn't lead this mission with integrity. You know, what comes around goes around. And what, and you reap what you sow, right? So even though he wasn't the collateral damage, the people around him were collateral damage. And now he's got to sit in that. And maybe he has the wherewithal and the, you know, the self-reflection and awareness to look back and be like, wow, you know what? Because of me, um, I could have gone about things in a different way and it wouldn't have led to the outcomes that occurred. But you know what? Theseus probably thought a little too highly of himself. He liked his laurel leaves on his head. He liked being equated to Ares, the god of war. You know, maybe he was just like frat boy dude that was like, you know what? I am daddy's boy and I'm the prince and everybody bowed down to me and there's nothing wrong with me and skibbity bibbity bop. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I guess the myth can also subtly be implied if we're looking at the Minotaur itself and the fight between Theseus and the Minotaur. 
The Minotaur is the symbol of forms of injustice because the Minotaur kind of was constructed out of injustice. Minos, mino, meaning minus, tar, coming from Taurus, meaning bull, means, you know, Minos's bull essentially is what the Minotaur refers to. Um, and then Theseus can be seen as the symbol of the people who fight against those forms of injustice. And in this day and age, we have many forms of injustice. We have prejudice. We have homophobia. We have um, transphobia. We have xenophobia. Xenos meaning stranger in Greek. If you didn't know, xenophobia is just the fearing of the stranger, essentially. Um you know, I mean, we have the fight against terrorism and the hate and and all these divisive things in our world. And maybe Theseus, the concept of Theseus, not who he is and not his personality, but just the, the symbol of fighting against the Minotaur could be very well um, equated to um, the battle against tyranny and rulership, and tyrannical rulership, and dictatorship, and anger, and hatred, and how courage, and strength, and determination can kind of supersede those things. Super meaning above, seed coming from Cato, which means to, to rise, essentially, so to, to rise above, supersede, proceed. Um, all right, this is an etymology time. Sorry, we're going to leave it there, I think. With that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed this little myth, tying back the moral implications of such, and just, you know, sitting back, relaxing, popping open a bubbly, I don't know, having some coffee, having some tea, whatever you're doing, appreciate you for being here. Now, before we leave... You know what I got to do? I got to remind ourselves. Yesterday, I had a really amazing bike ride. I got to talk to my parents for a long time. It was very casual. I was a, It was a hard climb, and then I kind of just did laps around Prospect Lake for, you know, a few miles and talked to my parents while I did it. And you know what? It was a good day. And at the end of the day, makes me think about how grateful I am to have my legs and my calves yeah, why don't go ahead and take your hand and you, maybe you have your foot planted on the floor. And I like to do this with my students because we'll do etymology days with anatomy. So why don't you go ahead and take that foot and flex your calf? You know how to flex your calf. Just stand on your tippy toes with that one foot. Um, but you can continue to seat. This would be more so you're engaging your soleus muscle rather than your gastrocnemius. But your gastrocnemius is your sole, your calf muscle. Like that's the predominant calf muscle. What does gastrocnemius really mean? Well, gastro, like gastrointestinal, gastro in the Greek refers to stomach. And then nemius comes from neme in the Greek, which means leg or more specifically the lower leg so and in this case the gastrocnemius means the stomach of the lower leg so if you actually wanted to flex your gastrocnemius you would actually need to stand up and then stand on your tippy toes again and you can see how your calf gets um engaged in a different way because your soleus is going to be flexed um in a um 
in a different respect when you're, um, uh, what am I trying to say? When you're ham or when you're, you're, you're already in a state of flexion, when you, um, are sitting, that's when, uh, your soleus is going to be engaged, AKA a seating calf raise or anything like that. But if you're standing and you're doing a standing calf raise, that's going to be your gastrocnemia. So if you're doing it right now and maybe you've got your hand and you're holding it, you can, it's kind of like a little bit of a tummy tum of your lower leg, right? Your gastrocnemius. So I thank my gastrocnemius because there's a lot of engaging of the, of the calves when you're biking or you're running or you're walking or, and existing in life. So with that being said, thank your legs. Thank your arms. Thank your stomach. I'm not going to cry this time. <laughs> thank everything because it's your vessel and I hope you treat it well and if you don't tell yourself that you'll do better but only if you mean it because you yourself know if you mean it or not and you yourself know what's worth it in your life and what's important in your life and that shows overtly and covertly to the people around you what you value and what you what you what you put your worth in so what is it for you is it your family is it your health is it your education your profession your friends your family your faith maybe it's all of the above but what is important and what is worth it. You are the master of your own universe. You really are. And until next time, don't do anything dumb. Because tempus est discetere. The time is fleeted. And it's time for you to get out of here. See ya.